Hello and welcome to Hollywood's podcast, Politically Speaking. I am journalist Louise Wilson, and in this special COP26 episode of the podcast, I am speaking to Al Dutton, Chief Executive of the Scottish Catholic International Aid Fund. Al, we all are now at the end of week one of COP. What are your general impressions so far? I have to say, given where we started the week, I'm feeling quite upbeat about it. Um, we entered COP with pledges that we knew about, adding up to about 2.7 degrees of temperature rise. Um, the International Energy Authority's um, analysis of what has been promised this week, and there have been some very significant announcements, a whole lot of new nationally determined contributions. And if governments really follow through, then they, the prediction is it will come down to 1.8 degrees. That is the first time ever, we've, or not the first time ever, but the first time since the climate emergency became so apparent that we've been looking like we could get under two degrees. So that, if Glasgow only achieves that, that would be a massive achievement. But the devil's in the detail, and the biggest problem there is pace and how quickly we get there. So in order to get to net zero by 2050, as many have now promised, we've got to do 70% of it before 2030. And that's what's missing. We've got to move from the words and the promises to real delivery. They've now got to follow through. We've actually got to cut those emissions, not just promise to do it. And we've got to do 70% of that by 2030. But given that, 1.8 degrees is a massive achievement. Um, We've also seen from the Scottish government the announcement that they will be the first state ever to give money to loss and damage, which is for people who are suffering real material loss and damages already, um, and they can't recover from that. And so the Scottish government has promised and, and put forward a mechanism and a million pounds to become the first government putting money into loss and damage. Now, Scotland obviously plays a relatively modest role in terms of global development and and the amounts of money, but it's hugely significant to be the first country out there. It sets a great precedent, and I really hope we're going to see other countries start to fall in line and make their pledges, and hopefully that will lead to the much bigger amounts of money that we know are necessary. So I think on climate finance... (laughs) The 100 billion that many talk about, that's been kicked further down the road. That's a disappointment. But loss and damage was one of our big objectives coming into COP. So seeing that announcement by the Scottish Government. Um, a more mixed picture is the degree to which the voices of the Global South are really being heard. Um, that's absolutely fundamental in this. It's fundamental because it's a question of justice. We can't just be talking about them and deciding what the right solutions are for them. We need them in the room. It's their future. It's all of our future. But many of these solutions are their future. So a mixed picture on their participation. We at SKIAF have brought 10 of our partners, and they've certainly been very active and all around events um, inside the Blue Zone and outside in more in events that are available to the general public. Um, but the degree to which the voices of the Global South are really being heard at the centre of the delegation, I'd have more questions about. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, throughout all climate discussions, we often hear about how the poorest countries are going to be hit first and hardest. Um, we're already seeing some of those impacts of, of global warming now. Um, you've actually, of course, visited many of these countries and seen those impacts firsthand. So can you paint a picture for, for me and, and our listeners about, about what it actually means to be first and worst hit? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's almost glib to say the poorest are hit first and worst, but it's absolutely true. And every time I travel into the villages and talking to people, they each and every person has a story about how their life is becoming harder and harder because of the changing climate. I mean, there's the obvious mega events like the increasing ferocity and frequency of cyclones and typhoons that just tear through communities. They tear houses down, they throw the roofs around that become scythes flying through the air and that's where people are killed. But it wipes out harvests, it destroys the land and... Um, and that is becoming much more frequent, and much more severe. Um, in, a, in the countries where we work in Africa, we regularly see flooding and drought, one on the back of the other. So they've no sooner been through the monsoon season and they've been planting. Um, and we see the huge floods, the crops that are washed away, the land that is lost. And then you see the plants that are just rotting in the ground. Later in the season, we see more severe um, droughts. And so you, whatever crops have survived then are withering and dying in the ground. And people just stand and they look at it and they know that the next time they can plant is in a year's time. So what are they going to do in the meantime? So farmers tell us all the time that life is just becoming so much much more difficult as a result of what's hitting them mm -hmm. i mean i suppose when we talk about countries that are at risk the fact that we even phrase it as as countries being at risk when it's, it's the people at the heart of this and they're the the ones that are that are impacted yes absolutely it is all it you have to get down to the local level and get into the communities and meet the people. And then you hear firsthand what the actual experiences are. Um, and so that's where SCIAF is. SCIAF is always in those local communities, working through our local partners. Um, and it's through those conversations that people just demonstrate to us time and time again. And the vast majority of our programmes now we are a development agency, but when we work with communities and say, what are your problems? They say, first and foremost, we just can't make agriculture work anymore. And so we're doing an enormous amount of work really on sustainable um, agroecology and um, organic agriculture to help people manage to get some kind of harvest out of their land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess that, that brings us to the, the 100 billion target, which, is, as you said earlier, has, it's already been missed. It's also meant to be 100 billion per year from 2020. Um, so it's, you know, it's, we're talking about huge amounts of money. So first of, firstly, what is the cash used for? Um, and secondly, what would you say to our leaders about the fact that it has been missed? So the cash is used, the promise of 100 billion was for mitigation and adaptation. So mitigation is helping people reduce their carbon emissions. Adaptation is helping people adapt to their changing climate. Um, 
in actual fact, of the money that's been available, much more has been spent on people trying to get their carbon emissions down. And there's a reason for that. We who have carbon emissions, we the richer countries, are quite happy with setting ourselves these steep targets, provided we don't have to change our lifestyles. And so we're investing huge amounts of money into doing the same thing, but emitting a bit less carbon. If you come from the global south, you never emitted any carbon. The conversation about how do you get your carbon down is academic. You haven't got any to get down. But what you are facing is the real day-to-day catastrophe that is the changing climate. And until this point, as I say, most of that money has been going into mitigation. And one of the things we really need to see is a split 50-50 between mitigation, but that money going to people who are really trying to cope. And what does that do? Well, it can mean, as in many of our agroecology programmes, it's working with farmers to increase the fertility of their soil as that becomes more denuded. And there are all sorts of products with composting and manure and various different ways of getting more nutrient into the soil so they can they have more fertile soil. Lots of different ways of managing what water is available, so increasing water management, water retention... Um, making sure we have appropriate seeds that can cope with the weather, the current weather conditions, and then tackling pests when they come along. And by working in that kind of integrated way with farmers, the land they're on, you can watch it come back to life. And we hear figures of yields going up by a factor of 10 once these practices start to be built into the way they're farming. Um, But it can be in farming, it can be in helping people um, live in houses that can cope with cyclones and and typhoons and making sure that they're really built strong enough to cope with the weather they're going to have to face. Um, Some people are having to, as areas become more flood prone, actually move on to higher land. So it can be as simple as moving like that. But then, of course, you get into issues of land ownership, land tenure. So that's not simple in and of itself. So there's a wide range of activities that people, and this is the value of being in communities, they will tell you what the problems are and they prioritise them. They can tell you what they're, what keeps them awake at night now. And we absolutely have to hear those voices and put them at the centre of whatever plans we start to put in place for this money because it's their reality and it's their future. And therefore, as a matter of justice, they need to be able to design it for themselves. Um, so that's around what the money for the 100 billion would be used for. But honestly, we're betraying that pro- promise. That promise was made in Paris six years ago that 100 billion would be on the table. We haven't got to 80% of that. And the announcement just 10 days ago kicked that can another three years down the line. So now the promises will get there on 2023. Um, we know that we are over emitting at the moment. We're not in line with the Paris Agreement in terms of our emissions. So the problem is getting worse and the help is coming later. And once again, it is the poorest people in the poorest countries who are suffering that double bind. They can see the climate still running away from them and there's no, uh, there's no help 
or, or there's nothing like the amount of help that's needed in order to cope. So we haven't got there in volume, but also countries are rebadging money they'd already allocated. So aid budgets, are elements of aid budgets are being described as climate finance. That money was already going to go. It's just being re talked about it doesn't do anymore you can only spend it once and a lot of the money that's available is being given as loans and that is just wrong this is money going to countries who are suffering from the changing climatic conditions that we have created it's we in scotland the uk and the developed nations who have been burning fossil fuels for 200 years and have created the changing climate. We've created this crisis, and yet we say we're going to lend the money to people so that they can cope with it. That's just wrong. So there's not enough money there. It's certainly not coming fast enough. And the way we're giving it is frankly an insult. So I, th- I think we are betraying the people to whom we made this promise in terms of that money coming on. And The other part of climate finance, which is very much part of these negotiations and countries in the global south are absolutely adamant that this is crucial for them, is the funding for loss and damage. So for people who suffer material losses as the result of the climate emergency. And as I said earlier in the podcast, um, the Scottish government is the first country to have made an announcement that they'll put money into loss and damage. That really establishes the principle now at the level of these talks. Um, What we now need is that the parties of the conference will follow that lead and and take that precedent, follow the example, and start to bring more money online for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we started this podcast with you sounding quite optimistic about where cop was heading at the moment um but then you know tempering that with uh, a, a dose of skepticism or a dose of concern about the exclusion of the global south from from the sort of official room um and what you're saying just there about about the climate finance stuff so i mean are you at all hopeful that that this cop will really bring climate justice forward for it not to be just rhetoric and, and empty words. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this COP was always going to be just one COP in a whole string of meetings. They happen every year. It's very significant because it was the fifth one over Paris. So that was when countries had to come with these nationally determined contributions. So it's a milestone in that respect. And when they've made those announcements and those nationally determined contributions, they, if they follow through, that will get us to 1.8 degrees. I certainly didn't come into COP believing we'd have 1.8 degrees on the table. So I think that's an enormous, it's an enormous achievement for a week to have that. But we were never going to stop after Glasgow this, you don't get to climate justice in one step. We need to go beyond 1.8 degrees and get below one and a half degrees. It's significant because it keeps one and a half degrees in sight, but it's not the finish line. And 
we've got to run this race, staying with the analysis, uh, uh, sorry, the metaphor of, of a finish line, we've got to run this race faster. We've got to do 70% of this in the next nine years. It's not even 10 years, it's this decade. So yes, I'm optimistic because this is one day and we do have to celebrate and bank the success that comes out of COP, but we have to keep pushing and going faster and faster year after year because we know that this is the decade we have to get this right and we have to keep the world leaders, keep politicians honest to the promises they've made and make sure that they really deliver on them. If they come through and put in place the plans, and that's where we need to move from the big targets to real detailed plans now and policies. How will we achieve this? How do we get granular on this and break it down so that each bit of society knows how it's changing in order to deliver it? And if we do that and we do it quickly enough, sure, why wouldn't I be hopeful?